0: Chapter 16 of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo and Eva Davis. Henry the Fourth in Two Parts. If Shakespeare's fondness for the ludicrous sometimes led to faults in his tragedies, which was not often the case, he has made us amends by the character of falstaff this is perhaps the most substantial comic character that ever was invented sir john carries a most portly presence in the mind's eye and in him not to speak it profanely we behold the fulness of the spirit of wit and humour bodily we are as well acquainted with his person as his mine, and his jokes come upon us with double force and relish from the quantity of flesh through which they make their way as he shakes his fat sides of laughter or lards the lean earth as he walks along other comic characters seem if we approach and handle them to resolve themselves into air into thin air but this is embodied and palpable to the grossest apprehension it lies three fingers deep upon the ribs it plays about the lungs and the diaphragm with all the force of animal enjoyment His body is like a good estate to his mind, from which he receives rents and revenues of profit and pleasure in kind, according to its extent and the richness of the soil. Wit is often a meagre substitute for pleasurable sensation, an effusion of spleen and petty spite at the comforts of other, from feeling none in itself. Falstaff's wit is an emanation of a fine constitution, an exuberance of good humour and good nature, an overflowing of his love of laughter and good-fellowship, a giving vent to his heart's ease and over-contentment with himself and others. He would not be in character if he were not so fat as he is, for there is the greatest keeping in the boundless luxury of his imagination and the pampered self-indulgence of his physical appetites. He manures and nourishes his mind with jests, as he does his body with sack and sugar. carves out his jokes as he would a capon or a haunch of venison where there is cut and come again and pours out upon them the oil of gladness his tongue drops fatness and in the chambers of his brain it snows of meat and drink he keeps up perpetual holiday and open house and we live with him in a round of invitations to a rump and dozen yet we are not to suppose that he was a mere sensualist. All this is as much in imagination as in reality. His sensuality does not engross and stupefy his other faculties, but ascends me into the brain, clears away all the dull, crude vapours that environ it, and makes it full of nimble, fiery, and delectable shapes. His imagination keeps up the ball after his senses have done with it. He seems to have even a greater enjoyment of the freedom from restraint of good cheer, of his ease, of his vanity, and the ideal exaggerated descriptions which he gives of them, then in fact. He never fails to enrich his discourses with allusions to eating and drinking, but we never see him at table. He carries his own larder about with him, and he is himself a ton of man. His pulling out the bottle in the field of battle is a joke to show his contempt for glory accompanied with danger his systematic adherence to his epicurean philosophy in the most trying circumstances again such is his deliberate exaggeration of his own vices that it does not seem quite certain whether the account of his hostess's bill found in his pocket with such an out-of-the-way charge for capons and sack with only one halfpenny worth of bread was not put there by himself as a trick to humour the jest upon his favourite propensities, and as a conscious caricature of himself. He is represented as a liar, a braggart, a coward, a glutton, etc., and yet we are not offended but delighted with him, for he is all these as much to amuse others as to gratify himself. He openly assumes all these characters to show the humorous part of them the unrestrained indulgence of his own ease appetites and convenience has neither malice nor hypocrisy in it in a word he is an actor in himself almost as much as upon the stage we no more object to the character of falstaff in a moral point of view than we should think of bringing an excellent comedian who should represent him to the life before one of the police offices We only consider the number of pleasant lights in which he puts certain foibles, the more pleasant, as they are opposed to the received rules and necessary restraints of society, and do not trouble ourselves about the consequences resulting from them, for no mischievous consequences do result. Sir John is old as well as fat, which gives a melancholy retrospective tinge to the character, and by the disparity between his inclinations and his capacity for enjoyment makes it still more ludicrous and fantastical. The secret to Falstaff's wit is for the most part a masterly presence of mind, an absolute self-possession which nothing can disturb. His repartees are involuntary suggestions of his self-love, instinctive evasions of everything that threatens to interrupt the career of his triumphant jollity and self-complacency his very size floats him out of all his difficulties in a sea of rich conceits and he turns round on the pivot of his convenience with every occasion and at a moment's warning his natural repugnance to every unpleasant thought or circumstance of itself makes light of objections and provokes the most extravagant and licentious answers in his own justification his indifference to truth puts no check upon his invention and the more improbable and unexpected his contrivances are the more happily does he seem to be delivered to them the anticipation of their effect acting as a stimulus to the gaiety of his fancy the success of one adventurous sally gives him spirits to undertake another he deals always in round numbers and his exaggeration excuses are open palpable Monstrous as the father that begets them, his dissolute carelessness of what he says discovers itself in the first dialogue with the prince, Falstaff, by the Lord, thou sayest true, lad, and is not mine hostess of the tavern, a most sweet wench, Prince Henry, as the honey of Hybla, my old lad of the castle, and is not a buff jerkin. A most sweet robe of durance. Falstaff. How now, how now, madwag? What in thy quips and thy quiddities? What a plague have I to do with a buff jerkin? Prince Henry. Why, what a pox have I to do with mine hostess of the tavern? In the same scene, he afterwards affects melancholy from pure satisfaction of heart and professes reform because it is the farthest thing in the world from his thoughts he has no qualms of conscience and therefore would as soon talk of them as of anything else when the humour takes him falstaff but how i prithee trouble me no more vanity i would to god thou and i knew where a commodity of good names were to be bought and an old lord of council rated me the other day in the street about you sir but i marked him not and yet he talked very wisely and in the street too prince henry thou didst well for wisdom cries out in the street and no man regards it falstaff oh thou hast damnable iteration and art indeed able to corrupt a saint thou hast done much harm unto me hal god forgive thee for it before i knew thee hal i knew nothing and now i am if a man should speak truly little better than one of the wicked i must give over this life and i will give it over by the lord and i do not i am a villain i'll be damned for never a king's son in christendom prince henry where shall we take a purse to-morrow jack falstaff where thou wilt, lad, I'll make one, and I do not call me villain and baffle me Prince Henry I see good amendment of life in thee, from praying to purse taking Falstaff. Why Hal 'tis my vocation, Hal Tis no sin for a man to labor in his vocation of the other prominent passages his account of his pretended resistance. To the robbers who grew from four men in buckram into eleven, as the imagination of his own valour increased with his relating it, his getting off when the truth is discovered by pretending he knew the prince, the scene in which, in the person of the old king, he lectures the prince and gives himself a good character, the soliloquy on honour and description of his new raised recruits, his meeting with the chief justice. His abuse of the prince and poins who overhear him, to Doll Tearsheet, his reconciliation with Mrs. Quickley, who has arrested him for an old debt in whom he persuades to pawn her plate to lend him ten pounds more, and the scenes which shallow and silence are all inimitable. Of all of them, the scene in which Falstaff plays the part first of the king and then of Prince Henry is the one that has been the most often quoted we must quote it once more in illustration of our remarks falstaff harry i do not only marvel where thou spendest thy time but also how thou art accompanied for thou the chamomile the more it is trodden on the faster it grows yet youth the more it is wasted the sooner it wears that thou art my son i have partly thy mother's word partly my own opinion but chiefly a villainous trick of thine eye and a foolish hanging of thy nether lip that doth warrant me if then thou be son to me here lies the point why being son to me art thou so pointed at shaft the blessed son of heaven prove a miker and eat blackberries, A question not to be asked. Shall the son of England prove a thief and take purses? A question not to be asked. There is a thing, Harry, which thou hast often heard of, and it is known to many in our land by the name of Pitch. This Pitch, as ancient writers do report, doth defile. So doth the company thou keepest. For, Harry, now I do not speak to thee in drink, but in tears, not in pleasure, but in passion, not in words only, but in woes also. And yet there is a virtuous man whom I have often noted in thy company, but I know not his name. Prince Henry. What manner of man? and it like your majesty falstaff a good portly man in faith and a corpulent of a cheerful look a pleasing eye and a most noble carriage and as i think his age some fifty or by your lady inclining to threescore and now i do remember me his name is falstaff if that man should be lewdly given he deceiveth me for harry i see virtue in his looks if then the fruit may be known by the tree as the tree by the fruit then peremptorily i speak it there is virtue in that falstaff him keep with the rest banish and tell me now thou naughty varlet tell me where hast thou been this month prince henry dost thou speak like a king do thou stand for me and i'll play my father falstaff depose me if thou dost it half so gravely so majestically both in word and matter hang me up by the heels for a rabbit sucker or a poulterer's hair prince henry well here i am set falstaff and here i stand judge my masters prince henry now harry whence come you falstaff my noble lord from east cheap prince henry the complaints i hear of thee are grievous falstaff blood my lord they are false nay i'll tickle ye for a young prince in faith prince henry swearest thou ungracious boy henceforth ne'er look on me thou art violently carried away from grace there's a devil haunts thee in the likeness of a fat old man a ton of man is thy companion why dost thou converse with that trunk of humours that bolting hutch of beastliness that swollen parcel of dropsies that huge bombard of sack that stuffed cloak bag of guts that roasted manning-tree ox with a pudding in his belly that reverend vice that gray iniquity that father ruffian that vanity in years wherein is he good but to taste sack and drink it wherein neat and cleanly to carve a capon and eat it wherein cunning but in craft wherein crafty but in villainy wherein villainous but in all things wherein worthy but in nothing falstaff i would your grace would take me with you who means your grace prince henry that villainous abominable misleader of youth falstaff that old white-bearded satan falstaff my lord the man i know prince henry i know thou dost falstaff but to say i know more harm in him than in myself were to say more than i know that he is old the more the pity his white hairs do witness it But that he is, saving your reference a whore master, that I utterly deny. If sack and sugar be a fault, God help the wicked. If to be old and merry be a sin, then many an old host that I know is damned. If to be fat be to be hated, then Pharaoh's lean kind are to be loved. No, my good lord, banish Pito. Banish Bardolph, banish Poins, but for sweet Jack Falstaff, kind Jack Falstaff, true Jack Falstaff, valiant Jack Falstaff, and therefore more valiant, being as he is, old Jack Falstaff. Banish not him, thy Harry's company. Banish plump Jack, and banish all the world. Prince Henry i do i will knocking and hostess and bardolph go out re-enter baldolph running bardolph oh my lord my lord the sheriff with a most monstrous watch is at the door falstaff out you rogue play out the play i have much to say in the behalf of that falstaff one of the most characteristic descriptions of sir john is that which mrs quickly gives of him when he asks her what is the gross sum that i owe thee hostess
1: mary if thou wert an honest man thyself and the money too thou didst swear to me upon a parcel gilt goblet sitting in my dolphin chamber at the round table by sea-coal fire on wednesday in whitsun week when the prince broke thy head for likening his father to a singing man of windsor thou didst swear to me then as i was washing thy wound to marry me and to make me my lady thy wife canst thou deny it did not good wife geech the butcher's wife come in then and call me gossip quickly coming in to borrow a mess of vinegar telling us she had a good dish of prawns, whereby thou didst desire to eat some whereby i told thee they were ill for a green wound and didst thou not when she was gone downstairs desire me to be no more so familiarity with such poor people saying that ere long they should call me madam and didst thou not kiss me and bid me fetch thee thirty shillings i put thee now to my book oath deny it if thou canst
0: this scene is to us the most convincing proof of falstaff's power of gaining over the good will of those he was familiar with, except indeed Bardolph's somewhat profane exclamation on hearing the account of his death Would I were with him wheresoever he is, whether in heaven or in hell. One of the topics of exulting superiority over others most common in Sir John's mouth is his corpulence and the exterior marks of good living which he carries about him thus turning his vices into commodity. He accounts for the friendship between the prince and poins, from their legs being both of bigness, and compares Justice shallow to a man made after supper of a cheese paring. There cannot be a more striking gradation of character than that between Falstaff and shallow, and shallow and silence. It seems difficult, at first, to fall lower than the squire. But this fool, great as he is, finds an admirer and humble foil in his cousin Silence. Vain of his acquaintance with Sir John, who makes a butt of him, he exclaims, Would cousin Silence that thou hadst seen that which this knight and I have seen? Ay, Master Shallow, we have heard the chimes at midnight, says Sir John. To Falstaff's observation, I did not think Master Silence had been a man of this metal. Silence answers, Who I? I have been married twice and once ere now. What an idea is here conveyed of a prodigality of living! What good husbandry and economical self-denial in his pleasures! What a stock of lively recollections! It is curious that Shakespeare has ridiculed Injustice Shallow, who was in some authority under the king. That disposition to unmeaning tautology which is the regal infirmity of later times and which it may be supposed he acquired from talking to his cousin's silence and receiving no answers falstaff you have here a goodly dwelling and a rich shallow baron 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 beggars all beggars all sir john Mary good air spread davy spread davy well said davy falstaff this davy serves you for good uses shallow a good varlet a good varlet a very good varlet by the mass i have drank too much at supper a good varlet now sit down now sit down come cousin the true spirit of humanity the thorough knowledge of the stuff we are made of the practical wisdom with the seeming fooleries in the whole of the garden scene at shallow's country seat and just before in the exquisite dialogue between him and silence on the death of old double have no parallel anywhere else in one point of view they are laughable in the extreme in another they are equally affecting if it is affecting to show what a little thing is human life what a poor forked creature man is the heroic and serious part of these two plays founded on the story of henry the fourth is not inferior to the comic and farcical the characters of hotspur and prince henry are two of the most beautiful and dramatic both in themselves and from contrast that ever were drawn they are the essence of chivalry we like hotspur the best upon the whole, perhaps because he was unfortunate. The characters of their fathers, Henry the Fourth and old Northumberland, are kept up equally well. Henry naturally succeeds by his prudence and caution in keeping what he has got. Northumberland fails in his enterprise from an excess of the same quality, and is caught in the web of his own cold, dilatory policy. Owen Glendower is a masterly character it is as bold and original as it is intelligible and thoroughly natural the disputes between him and hotspur are managed with infinite address and insight into nature we cannot help pointing out here some very beautiful lines where hotspur describes the fight between glendower and mortimer when on the gentle sovereign sedge bank in single opposition hand to hand he did confound the best part of an hour in changing partiment with great glendower three times they breathed and three times did they drink upon agreement of swift Severn's flood who then affrighted with their bloody looks ran fearfully among the trembling reeds and hid his crisp head in the hollow bank blood-stained with these valiant combatants the peculiarity and the excellence of shakespeare's poetry is that it seems as if he made his imagination the handmaid of nature and nature the plaything of his imagination he appears to have been all the characters and in all the situations he describes it is as if either he had had all their feelings or had lent them all his genius to express themselves there cannot be stronger instances of this than hotspur's rage when henry the fourth forbids him to speak of mortimer his insensibility to all that his father and uncle urged to calm him and his fine abstracted apostrophe to honour by heaven methinks it were an easy leap to pluck bright honour from the moon etc after all notwithstanding the gallantry generosity good temper and idle freaks of the madcap prince of wales we should not have been sorry if northumberland's force had come up in time to decide the fate of the battle at shrewsbury at least we always heartily sympathize with lady percy's grief when she exclaims had my sweet harry had but half their numbers to-day might i hanging on hotspur's neck have talked of monmouth's grave the truth is that we never could forgive the prince's treatment of falstaff though perhaps Shakespeare knew what was best, according to the history, the nature of the times, and of the man. We speak only as dramatic critics, whatever terror the French in those days might have of Henry V, yet to the readers of poetry at present, Falstaff is the better man of the two. We think of him and quote him oftener. End of Henry the Fourth in two parts.